Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Good afternoon and welcome to our audience here in the studio and to our viewers online around the globe. My name is Eric Anderson. I'm the director of Voices in Leadership, and this series focuses on lessons of effective leadership to create positive change in public health. Today we host a discussion on the media of the White House and healthcare with Professor Robert Blendon and our guests Margaret Telev and Joanne Kennan. Margaret Telev is senior White House correspondent from Bloomberg News and a CNN political analyst. She is past president of the White House Correspondents Association and the Washington Press Club Foundation. Before reporting on President Donald Trump, Telev covered Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, Barack Obama's 2008 and 2012 campaigns, Obama's two terms in the White House, and Congress. This fall, she's serving as an IOP fellow at Harvard. Joanne Kennan is executive editor for healthcare at Politico. She has covered healthcare policy in Washington for 20 years. Kennan spent more than a decade on Capitol Hill covering health for Reuters, and she joined Politico in 2011. Her work has appeared in numerous magazines and newspapers, and she's a frequent radio and TV commentator. She is currently serving as a mentor senior leadership fellow here at the Chan School. Before I turn this discussion over to our moderator, Professor Robert Blendon, please join me as we welcome Margaret Telev and Joanne Kennan to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you. Hi, Bob Blendon. Uh, we agree, given the unusual times in Washington, we were going to talk about these issues very, very broadly. Uh, so from those of us who don't live in Washington, uh, it looks uh, like a community where we have just had an election with polarized candidates, uh, polarized voters, uh, attacks that I haven't seen on uh, the media, uh, journalism, and uh, from a research institution, uh, a uh, development of alternative facts. Uh, for that, uh, the most re recent one, if you're far away, uh, was in the last two weeks of the campaign, uh, the Republican Party saying that they had always been for protecting pre-existing conditions. So the questions for you is, how do you effectively cover these major health and social policy issues that are there so people outside of Washington can understand what's happening and also keep to some fact base? Uh, so I'm just going to ask the, the two of you to go and then at some point throw in a second question which follows up. Joanne or Margaret? Yes. <laughs> thanks. Uh, thanks, Bob, and thanks, Eric. Um, and thanks to all of you guys. Um, I, I mean, I, I'd like to try to take your question in two parts because one is the overall climate, the fact yeah, climate, right. the media climate, and the other is the issue of healthcare, which you know of all of you are here for, experts in, uh, are going to be the future leaders in. And, for healthcare specifically, like this was a huge year, like a really important potentially midterm election, at least in terms of what it said about public interest in these issues and public concerns about these issues. How that manifests itself in terms of governance, I think, is a really different question and something that I'm sure we'll tackle um, here. But uh, these are this is an issue that broke through, and when you look at the polling and you slice and dice it, it broke through in a way that. Uh, in the House races decisively went towards some of the issues the Democratic candidates had been championing, even if Republican candidates, even if some also felt that way and others sought to kind of co-opt some of the rhetoric of the issue, right? Uh, in terms of the overall media climate, this is a real challenge, and it, and it was a challenge in 2016, and you could see the seeds of the challenge forming even before then, 
you know, back as early as 2008, it seemed um, it looked different then when Facebook and Twitter and some of these really new technologies um, in that first Obama term kind of began taking hold as uh, tools that shaped how people talked about elections, how they shared information, how voters could be um, kind of corralled or um, choose off into their own groups, these kind of uh, like a Facebook group page or something like that. Um, but you can also see how social media can be misused or can be engineered to uh, manipulate people. And uh, separate from the world of old school journalism, this is one of the biggest issues that's confronting society, regardless of healthcare. I mean, on, on everything from the Russia probe to um, information about science, uh, what kind of information is contained on government websites, how available is the information, what statistics are put out, what can you trust. And then when it comes to the media itself, you know, um, social media and the technological platforms have greatly expanded the world of media. And I think when we talk about these issues, there's the difference between news, which is a much smaller section, and media writ large. And I, I'm not sure that the public always knows those distinctions, um, but journalists work in their lanes. And it is a challenge as a news reporter to try to address all of the intangibles about the expanding media world when most of that is really outside the rubric of what we do. I think uh, for me as a, a daily news reporter working a beat, and my beat being the White House and issues related to the White House, you know, I'm kind of like a ground troop and my mission is, this is going to sound hopelessly, you know, old school, but my mission is what has always been, which is not to take a side, to leave my feelings at the door and to try to find out uh, the pros and the cons of any idea and to try to give people a good sense of what are the facts and what context do those facts exist in. Uh, but that is a, it's like a borderline naive way to approach the job. I mean, it is the most honest way I can, I can think of to approach the job, but, uh, but by no means does it solve all of these greater issues that are kind of outside of the purview of what I do, you know? And I think that, you know, the fundament, there, there's a hundred fundamental differences between our lives as journalists now and everything we've done prior to this administration. And I mean, one of the differences is before we were both the beneficiaries of and the protectors of the First Amendment, and now we are the enemies of the people. And being called the enemies of the people is a really profound change. It's a pretty mind-boggling change in an era where we're, our minds are beyond boggled. Um, so, so our whole, the whole world we work in is a different world and a world that I don't think we expected to find ourselves in. Um, a world where, you know, doctored videotapes are tweeted out by the White House. Um, one of the things I think that's been so interesting in healthcare, I mean, I've covered other things in my life. I worked in Congress, I've covered presidential politics, I've done a bunch of stuff. But I, I specialize in healthcare and I've been doing only healthcare in recent years. Um, I think one of the things that really struck me is that, you know, whatever you think of President Trump, he's a very effective communicator. With one, you know, clip soundbite from a rally or one tweet or whatever he does, he has the ability to move the opinions of millions of Americans to where he wants them to go. And yet, he never really found his voice on health care this year. They lost the election, and they lost it in large part because of health care. The pre-existing conditions um, had a huge huge power because it struck some kind of chord about fairness. 
just like Democrat, you know, the, the, on the other side, the individual, individual mandate was never very popular. Even Democrats were not crazy about it, right? Republicans hated it, but Democrats didn't exactly fall in love with it either. By getting rid of the mandate penalty last year, the Republicans took that off the table politically. The least popular part of the, of the law was gone, and the most popular part of the law, which is the pre-existing conditions and related patient protections, was threatened. And you had Republicans swimming, I'm for it, I'm for it. And you know what? The voters didn't really believe them because they'd been watching them try to you know, repeal it over and over and over. There were, you know, I used to say there were more repeal votes than there are flavors of Baskin and Robbins. <laughs> you know, they just didn't stop for, for years, and then they failed. And why did they fail? It's, it's complicated. There's more than one reason, but a big reason, particularly the pressure on the House. The House finally did pass it, but it took them a long time, and it was hard. And then they got themselves on the record voting in a way that the public didn't like was pre-existing. I mean, Medicaid was also an issue, um, but pre-existing conditions, I think, was the single most salient issue for American voters in, in health care. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a risk when you're trying to analyze elections in, in you can look at what the polling says and you look at what the exit polling says, but it's always complicated to try to say this was a direct connection to this. Uh, you could argue um, also that the result of the direction that the House went in was uh, that the, enough of the public wanted to place a check on yeah. President Trump, uh, but that the delivery method for those campaigns overwhelmingly was health care because the Democrats had pulled it. If the Democrats had run on, I don't know, some other issue, uh, could they still have taken the House? It's possible. Right. but. But there was an understanding. It was, it was also about President Trump, I agree. It was not only health care, but health care was a big part of it. But there was. There was this uh, broad-based understanding that um, not campaigning to save Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act, per se, but campaigning on this issue of coverage um, was an issue that resonated so much with Americans. And... Um, you know, you can ask why, but it seems sort of obvious to me why there are huge technological and medical advancements that allow you to live longer and to be treated and sometimes cured. Uh, but your ability to access those is only as good as your insurance or your coverage or what you can afford to pay out of pocket. So um, that, the you know, the chance to have life-saving treatment plus the chance, the ability to keep your kids on insurance longer and some of these popular issues, um, were just widely popular. They're popular across partisan lines if you ask it the right way. If you if you identify it with President Obama or, or the name of the legislation, it becomes much more polarized. But if you identify it with what it does, these are broadly popular initiatives. What surprised me is how, how big a deal the Medicaid expansion yeah. became. Because if you pull the word Medicaid, it tests in a different way. It does test with partisan splits. And yet, when you look at what happened in now, well, now we're up to 35 states, 36 could go that way. The expansion of Medicaid is a big deal. And while, while we're sitting here covering politics, who's going to control which chamber? Not only did healthcare exist as the story off to the side, but specifically the Medicaid story existed as something that health policy reporters are covering, but I wouldn't say that it's not obviously not leading the coverage on cable news or the front page of uh, most newspapers or news websites you know, at this time, and yet it is probably the most profound health policy development Medicaid, of the election. really what stopped Medicaid. I think that the sort of public f um, upheaval last year, the town meetings were very pre-existing condition focused. And I think that's what slowed it down in the House. It did finally narrowly get through the House, but I think the House was very much a pre-existing condition debate. What happened in the Senate became a Medicaid debate. And I think it was Medicaid um, 
that actually stopped the repeal in the House. A combination of factors, but I think Medicaid had a, had a bigger a bigger role in stopping it in the Senate. But I mean, one one I mean, we were looking at sort of marquee races. We were looking at Florida. We were looking at Ohio. We were looking at control of the House. Those were the big issues last Tuesday. Was it just last Tuesday? Yes, was, right. Just, just was last Tuesday. Um, time flies, right? Um, but I think there were three. Um, three fascinating races is that in, in Utah, mm -hmm. Nebraska, and Idaho, these are like redder than a beat state. Yep. These are really, really red states. They voted to expand Medicaid. And they voted, you know, it was sort of a, a, they voted pretty easily. These are really conservative states that have conservative governors and conservative, le they didn't flip the legislature. They didn't change their elected government. The government looks the same in those states. But they said to that government, I know I'm voting for you as a Republican governor. I'm voting for you as a Republican state rep. I'm voting for you as a Republican senator. But I want Medicaid expanded in my state. And part of it is an economic argument. I mean, if you're paying, this was what Jan Brewer, who was the governor of, of Arizona a few years ago, very, very conservative, but one of the first Republicans to endorse Medicaid expansion. She partly made a moral argument, and she also made an economic argument. She said, we in Arizona are paying tax dollars to Washington, and they're going to go to some other state. Let's expand Medicaid and bring them back here. That was part of the message in some of these states, but it was also, again, a fairness argument. I mean, something, the, Americans are really, they're, you know, all over the place on health care. They want coverage, they want affordability, and they basically, I don't know that we as a country have really gotten the point where we agree that health care is a human right. I think in this room probably people think that. I don't think, I think if you phrase it that way, it would split nationally, and yet there's still people who might not use that language of right still sort of have this gut sense of fairness, of rightness, a difference between a right and just something that is feels right. And I think people don't like the idea that you pay insurance and you get sick and you're not covered. I just think people, Americans in Idaho and Utah and, and Nebraska And said, yeah, this is where we get into the fact versus rhetoric I, issue. I couldn't let that go. In, in our world, a disappearance of facts in debates really bothers a, a lot of this. Uh, for a community that's heavy on science and evidence, it just looks like you can go for months. And uh, how do you actually get people outside to figure out or what is the evidence for whether or not these things work or help people or the seriousness of problems or what people did? H how do you communicate? Uh, yeah. I mean, in a way, every news organization, news organizations used to be either print or TV or at some point, you know, online, but uh, they kind of had a, a a type of media, you know, type of medium through which they express themselves. And now everybody's a little bit of everything, right? Everyone's kind of a wire service. Everyone's got a, a video component of some form. I think news organizations are experimenting with storytelling uh, in terms of, uh, to get to your point, the question of how do you cap how do you capture someone's attention and hold it long enough to let them absorb information that might run counter to what they think or what the prevailing view is. But on some of these issues like, um, should you be able to buy these kind of cheaper health insurance plans or more short-term health insurance plans um, that, you know, where the rhetoric is that they give you more options, but like, <laughs> but the option you, you actually, sick, the, right? the option you actually need will not be there for you right. at the time when you need it. Like, this is a very difficult thing to communicate to people. You can You can tell people what the facts are. You can tell people what it would allow and what the critics say could be the downsides of that. 
but how can you make someone believe something that you've told them? Yeah. And I think that's, I don't know the answer. I know. And that predates, I should be here to give you the answer to the question. I don't know what the answer to the question but is. I, that, and that predates short-term plans yeah. or the ACA. I mean, the, the, the you know, biggest issue, and I think that shows that we have a problem with facts in healthcare and public health is vaccines. And that is not, you know, that's 20 years now. And I don't think we understand why that took root and stayed as powerful as it is. And, and you know, we do know, I mean, I think that, you know, we were talking to, to Bob before that, um, you know, many people in the policy world and, and the Harvard School of Public Health is, and the Kennedy School and everybody else who's watching this, you're, you're the next generation of, of, of leaders. And I think that there's this sort of feeling like- You if, are. <laughs> if I just- no yeah. If I if I enunciate the fact perfectly, people will it will get through. People will believe it, and that's just not the case. But repetition does actually does work. I mean, repetition of facts, repetition of a point of view. You could argue whether it's factual or not. There is evidence that repetition of facts works, and there is evidence that um, delivery of facts through multiple venues and sources rather than just one also works, which is why you see things like celebrity endorsements. How effective right. is that? But, um, you know, you can call that into question, but it's effective for some people. Uh, and interactivity can be a way to um, make something stick with a person if they are part of it rather than just an observer. And how do you translate that into the delivery of news or information? Or if you're uh, a doctor or a public health uh, provider, how do you employ those skills yourself? I think you could actually could and probably should do entire courses of study on behavioral psychology and uh, these sort of questions. It is definitely the information age. There is an overabundance of data. Some of it's accurate, some of it's misleading. Uh, but if you had all the data in the world to back up your points, your ability both as an individual, you know, doctor to patient, or your ability as a, running an educational organization, running a school, running a public health center uh, anywhere, um, your ability to convey that message and have it stick, I think is, you know, it's one of the, it's the same challenge that journalists face in terms of the reporting part is is half of the story and, and the communicating part is the other half of the story. But you also have just this mass of information, both in traditional media and social media and whatever hasn't even been invented yet that's gonna hit us tomorrow. And that it's really hard for people to um, to sort out, if, if you're given a lot of conflicting things, it is really hard to figure out what's true. And we tend to see, also I think we're somewhat, you know, when you read something that looks sort of reputable, there's a tendency to believe it. So, um, I mean, I think there are a lot of, there's a lot of interesting research going on about how do we perceive truth as we try to convey something like vaccines is a, perf is a perfect example. What, what, I mean, I've talked to some political scientists and um, people studying media and sort of psychology and that intersection of, you know, what is a trusted communicator? How do we break through? And I don't think we understand a lot of this yet. I mean, for some people, she's right. You, you, repetition and a simplicity and a constant message and a consistent message will get through. Other people we know, there's lots of research, that if they believe something to be, that is false, and you pre present them, let, let's just use a really you know, ridiculous example. If there's someone who believes the Earth is flat, and you show them that the Earth is round, all it's gonna do is make them more convinced that the Earth is flat. I mean, there are, there's, 
that there's ways that present, preventing factual information is making people cling to myth. And, and there are, I, I don't think we totally understand sort of this relationship between wherever we are as a country, this onslaught of information, the motivations of people who are conveying false information, and, and how these myths gain power and persist. Then you also have, going back to health policy, and it's not the only thing people voted on, but health policy, as our president did say, it's complicated. It is complicated, right? I mean, when I started covering it, and I've known Bob for a long time, you know, it's complicated. It's really complicated. And to try to, for, for, you know, quote, normal, unquote, I don't know if anyone's normal anymore in America, but to the extent that we can be normal, trying to figure out um, but what, what I think what's the difference is like back in the 90s, you'd have a, a House, you'd have a, a Democratic bill, and you'd have a Republican bill that sort of sounded the same, but was lighter or not really as protective, like Patients' Bill of Rights or something like that. They both had Patients' Bill of Rights, and one of them had a lot more consumer protections, but the other one sort of sounded good. And, and now it's like not even two versions. It's you had totally... You had, you had candidates for the House, Republican candidates for the House, saying the Democrat wasn't the one protecting pre-existing conditions, the Republican was, which isn't even like two versions of a bill that are confusing. It was like two versions of reality, only one of which was true. And yet, it's confusing to people. How do you, as a voter who's really not engaged in health policy on a 24-7 basis, like apparently, you know, became my fight, fate, um, you know, how do you figure out who's telling the truth because, and also some of the congressmen might have actually thought that they were protecting pre-existing conditions because their leadership told them they were. So there are probably some lawmakers who thought, our, you know, our bill did that. You know, we, we, of course we did that. And to them, they may have been telling the truth, thinking they were telling the truth. So. There are, so map ahead, um, 2020's already underway. You guys might have heard that. Uh, they're kind of in broad strokes, I think there are two healthcare trends to look for. And, and one is, um, the contours of the 2020 race and to what extent we see these discussions about, um, you know, Medicare for all or uh, or Medicaid for all or public option um, be uh, be themes inside the Democratic primary in particular. It's already started. And uh, and the other is prescription drug prices, right? Because on the what 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 do most people care about, right? What most most people care that they can get the tests and the coverage and and the diagnosis and the help and stuff that they need and that. If there's a pill for that, then they can take the pill, right? So, uh, on the one area, I think you'll continue to see this chasm between what Democrats and Republicans say. But on the prescription drug issue, it's a little bit different because President Trump himself has really um, uh, tried to stake out a position as the guy who's going to rein in drug prices for people. At the same time as the new trade agreement actually increased some of the patent issues that pharma wanted, so it's a mixed message. It doesn't all fit together. Right. Yeah. And then the, when you, I think that the drug, I, I, I think that there is actually a possibility in the new Congress that there will be some modest steps on, on, on drug prices. I don't think it'll be, you know, Trump had a 40, you know, I think we counted 46 question marks in his, I forgot the number. One of our reporters actually sat down and counted the question marks in his drug price blueprint, and they were an enormous number. Will we see something about some legislation on, on generic, um, favorable to making it easier to get generic drugs or to Or pharmacist disclosure or something yeah, like that. I mean, that. I think that there will be some, I, I would not be surprised to see some modest steps. Um, the House Democrats want to do it. 
Trump wants to do it, and probably enough Republicans in the, um, the Senate will, I think we will see some modest steps. I don't think you'll see a transformation. Again, you have to be very careful with the drug. This is one of those other, you know, confusing things to people. There's a difference between reducing co-pays, reducing what a what you pay when you go to the drugstore and bringing down drug prices. Because if you're reducing what I pay, you know, instead of $40, I pay $10, well, I feel like my drug is cheaper. But it, if the drug itself isn't cheaper, my premium is going to go up. I'm just going to be paying, and everybody's premium. You might be, it might be more equitable. It might be a better way of paying for it. There may be um, fairer mechanism if we spread the cost. But there is a difference between reducing out-of-pocket costs and reducing drug costs. And that is the kind of, it's really important. Is your average voter going to understand that? Probably not. Uh, let me broaden this out. The, uh, uh, this election had probably uh, the highest turnout that we've seen in a midterm election in a very long time. I, I raised two young men who both vote. Yes. <laughs> First uh, time for one of them this year, yes. And so uh, a, a few weeks out, the question in everybody's mind is, is something really important going to come out given that Congress is split and the president, in the next two years, if you're actually, forget you're not in Washington, are things going to happen that really affect people's lives, even health or even more broadly? Or do we not expect very much? Because there are an awful lot of enthusiastic people. Uh, and that's good. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that all of us think it's great that people voted. It was exciting to see the turnout. It was exciting to see the lines. We have to figure out how to cover it in the future with all these mail-in ballots that Tuesday night isn't going to really be Tuesday night. It's going to be like three Tuesdays later. That's a different topic. Um, you know, is Congress going to do anything? You know, they passed a really big tax bill last year, right? I mean, Congress may surprise us and do something. Do, can I tell you? I mean, are they going to do infrastructure? <laughs> You know, that's sort of a running joke in Washington about Infrastructure Week. Um, I'm not sure what the agenda really is. I don't know that they know what the agenda is other than positioning themselves for 2020. I mean, they're talking about another tax bill, but I don't think it'd be a big tax bill. All right, is the president going to try to do anything? Um, the president's going to try to do as much as he can with executive power because he has even less ability to maneuver Congress than he did before. Um, the House Democrats will try to use their newfound powers to oversight. put the president in a box, um, both for oversight reasons and for political reasons and all the places where the rubber meets the road on that. Um, uh, but a lot of that is going to be, uh, a lot of it, not all of it, a lot of it is going to be personal and presidential focused in nature. It's going to be about the president, his son-in-law, his closest team of advisors, the Russia investigation, Trump org, the businesses, his taxes. Uh, kind of what did he know? When did he know? That kind of stuff, and then right. some of it, and some of it will be regulatory. And I think, um, but so I think it depends on how you define. Are they going to do anything? What does do anything mean? If you're talking about uh, proactively, people's lives. So the that the are next really two important. years could end up being yeah. consumed entirely by whatever happens yeah. with the Department of Justice yeah. and the Mueller investigation. We could be doing nothing except that for a few months, and then also for for healthcare. It, you know, a lot of it depends on this judge in Texas. There's a, a lawsuit that 20, could rule, you know. Still 20 states or is it 19 states now? It's, it's still 20, I believe. I mean, even as we're shutting this room, who knows? Maybe they just ruled. Probably not. But, you know, that is going to change. Um, it could very much change what the ACA looks like. It'll, it'll take a few years to work itself through the But courts. I do think the states is the, so it, let's say the question mark about what Congress is capable or desirous of doing in the next two years that's 
substantive or regulatory or legislative. For those of us who stood up all night trying to get people turned out, we need to sense that something could come out of this. But I think at the state level, yeah. certainly you're already seeing action yeah. on... Wisconsin will probably drop out. I don't think they actually have yet, but... Wisconsin, there's Kansas, there's Maine, right. there's the initiatives in uh, some of the red states that we talked about, uh, and there's what the states do going forward. Um, uh, with uh, with the expanded Medicaid eligibility. So I think we'll see a lot of kind of laboratories in those states that are going to proceed apace, um, you know, kind of regardless of what Congress does. And and the, and part, one of the health questions is, do the House Democrats seek to get involved more actively in the state lawsuit? And the kind of flip side of that question is, um, do, uh, do some of those states that... Um, where people in, in the governor's mansion or um, or as a result of ballot initiatives, do some of those states pull out of, you know, that lawsuit. So I, I think, yeah, I think there's going to be action on health care uh, in the next two years. Um, but I would say part of the equation is look to the states for some of the proven ground. And part of the equation is um, you have to see all of this through the lens of positioning, both for the Democratic primary and the 2020. And if you general. want to find one yeah. bipartisan area that you feel good about, um, there is bipartisan work on opioids. You might not think the bills that have passed, the law that has, you might not think it goes far enough. You might not think that it's, it's, remember, there was one at the end of the Obama administration, there was just one this summer. We may need to do a whole lot more on this country on opioid addiction and other drug problems and mental health, but there really is, uh, it, has, it is one of the few areas where there actually is. Um, some consensus, some cooperation. Um, we haven't solved it, obviously, but the it is sort of reassuring if you cover Washington to at least see a public health emergency where the two sides are actually having a constructive, trying to figure it out conversation and moving in a public health direction that sort of, we're not moving in a lock everybody up and cut off their heads direction. So we're actually moving in a public health direction. Let me just direction. close with a, a, a quickie. Are, are you optimistic that Journalism can find a way to deal with this environment in the next few years uh, in a way that we can cope, we can adjust, uh, so people outside have a better sense of what's going on. Well, in some ways, it's sort of a golden age, right? I mean, the, the people are really engaged. The fact that voters turned out, they are paying attention. Well, you know, I work for a news organization that's growing. I mean, it's, I have 16 health reporters, and I'm going to probably get even more. Um, there are new media. I mean, all of, you know, there are all sorts of outlets that didn't exist a few years ago that are thriving. Local news, which we're not, that's a whole other issue. Local papers and local, you know, that, there's a huge desert there, and that's a problem. But nationally, there's really a lot of robust um, coverage and debate and plenty of places for you to find things out. Closing from the White House? Uh, I'm, I am hopeful, although I don't know if my time span is a few years. I think it may be a little bit longer than your optimistic time span. <laughs> I do. I think that, um, I, I think that uh, journalism has to. Uh, we have to. And it's, uh, I guess I won't say more important than ever because it's always really important. But there was a time, you know, somewhere around World War II where every American understood how precious the First Amendment was and uh, how uh, important it is to democracy. And there was a time during the Vietnam War where Americans were reminded of it in a different way. And I think we're in a time now where more Americans are removed from wars or their parents or grandparents' experiences with fascism or authoritarianism. They take for granted that they will have information on demand and that part of their First Amendment freedom is to criticize 
both the information and the delivery system for the information, and we have a real challenge now, which is uh, to try to all of us acquit ourselves well and understand why people feel disenfranchised from um, from the the people who have made it their mission to try to bring unbiased, clear information to people. So it's a it's a major challenge, but. Uh, not just our existence as a business, but our, I think our existence as a democracy really depends on it. And there are tremendous initiatives at the Shorenstein Center and at, across Harvard, um, at Pointer, all, all over the country. Uh, philanthropists are committed to this. Increasingly, we're seeing uh, both money and tech minds and, and veteran journalists coming to a greater sort of... Um, advocacy cause to try to unpack the psychology and the economics of why people feel disconnected from facts or want to choose their own facts. I, I think it's an enormous challenge, uh, but that there is increasingly an understanding about how important it is and a commitment to, to solve it. With that, let me thank Joanne and uh, Margaret. We will be back in two years, uh, <laughs> and I hope yeah, some of these issues are, are more optimistic. Thanks again very much for participating. Thank you. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.